Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, James. When you told me about the topic for this episode, I have to say I was pretty shocked. Were you now? You know, I was thinking we were talking about therapy for so long, and then you're like, we're going to change it up. And I was like, oh, this is going to be electric. That is so true, because on today's episode, we're going to be talking about electroconvulsive therapy, otherwise known as ECT. This is a very different kind of therapy than the talk therapies we've recently discussed. This is a lot more like a procedure. Exactly. It's actually one of the very few procedures we do have in psychiatry. So we'll probably keep talking about it as ECT, but against electroconvulsive therapy. When we think about ECT, there's a lot that comes to mind for me. I don't know about you. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess one of the things that I always think of is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a film that came out in the 70s where Jack Nicholson's character received ECT as actually a form of punishment against his will. It's pretty shocking. Yeah, and I feel like I've even seen it more recently as well. Yeah, I know. I saw it in Requiem for a Dream, which was a film that came out in the early 2000s. And I saw it actually super recently in the second season of Stranger Things. So we know that movies are not always true to life, but is ECT, is that really what it's like? No. All of these portrayals depict a super brutal, painful procedure that's done without the patient's consent. That is not at all how ECT actually is. These media portrayals are highly sensationalized and they've unfortunately helped to perpetuate negative stigma about ECT. That's such a bummer because ECT is not only really safe for people, and and these days we don't do things people without their consent. Right. You get informed consent. Right. Also like one of the most effective treatments that we have in psychiatry. Exactly. So that's why we're going to try to dispel some of these myths around ECT today with our talk. Cool. So you can become an expert. So why would you even use ECT? ECT is used to treat many conditions. It's used to treat depression, either bipolar depression or unipolar depression. Also used commonly to treat catatonia and even treatment-resistant psychosis or mania. But it's most commonly used for depression. Okay. And is it effective? It's super effective. It actually has uh, efficacy rates ranging from 70 to 90% for depression. Whoa. So if ECT is so effective, then why are we using it all over the place? That's a good question. And there are a few reasons for it. Number one is probably the stigma around it. A lot of patients are really hesitant to uh, go ahead with ECT. And I think a lot of providers have misconceptions about ECT, particularly non-psychiatric providers. There's also, unfortunately, a lack of providers that are trained in ECT. So we just don't have enough people to do it. And even if there is a provider that's trained in it, a lot of times a hospital or an outpatient clinic won't be able to provide it for patients. So there's limited access for patients. The people that I've seen that often get ECT is someone who, for instance, hasn't responded to not just one, but five different medications. They've also tried therapy 
or for some reason they can't tolerate all these medications or somebody needs to get better really quickly. Exactly. It, it tends to be reserved for particular patient populations. And so these would be like you were saying, James, people who are treatment resistant, who aren't responding to our standard treatments of meds plus therapy, or for some reason they're not able to tolerate medications, they can't engage in therapy, they need a really rapid response. For example, someone with really severe suicidal ideation, they're refusing food and they're like on the brink of death. That would be a person that you would really strongly think about ECT for. Or a pregnant person who can't tolerate other meds, you can use ECT in pregnancy. Patients with psychotic depression also respond super well to ECT. So that would be somebody who has depression and also has signs of psychosis. That would be auditory or visual hallucinations or delusions, like fixed false beliefs. Exactly, exactly. For instance, maybe they have this belief that they need to kill themselves to get to the afterlife and they're like really at risk of harming themselves. And so that would be something you need to fix sooner than the four to six weeks that an antidepressant might work. Exactly. Let's say that we found somebody and they're willing to get ECT and they're, we have it available. What, what does it actually, what happens? What does it look like to get electroconvulsive therapy? In a nutshell, the patient is taken to the OR. They're put under general anesthesia by an anesthesiologist. Once the patient is fully anesthetized, an electrical stimulus is applied through electrodes that are placed on the patient's scalp which then induces a seizure that lasts seconds to minutes. The electrical brainwave activity is believed to cause the therapeutic effect of ECT. Throughout the procedure, the patient's vitals are closely monitored, both by the psychiatrist doing the ECT and the anesthesiologist. And EEG activity in the brain is also monitored, so that confirms that the patient actually had a seizure. There's really no major muscle movements or shaking typically in ECT because of the anesthesia, which causes paralysis. So you don't have that classic general tonic-clonic seizure that you can visibly witness. So when you say seizure, you're referring to brainwave activities. You're not referring to their whole body shaking. Yeah, exactly. And so for that reason, ECT is surprisingly boring to watch, especially when you compare it to those very sensational portrayals that you see in the media. Gotcha. So... That's one ECT session. Is it like a one and done kind of thing? No, a full treatment with ECT requires multiple sessions. And this multiple sessions is often referred to as an index course of ECT. Most index courses typically require somewhere between 6 and 12 sessions for full sustained therapeutic effect, where the patient is getting ECT about two to three times per week. So a couple times a week, six to 12 sessions. So we're talking probably a few weeks here while somebody's getting electroconvulsive therapy. Yeah, exactly. Maybe four to six weeks. So somebody gets these electrical shock and it, we said it induces a seizure in the brain. Why is that actually having effect? Like why do people feel less depressed afterwards? There's no clear answer. There are a few hypotheses, though. The first hypothesis is that the seizure causes an increase in monoamine transmission. This is called the monoamine hypothesis. As you might recall, there are hypothesized to be serotonin deficits and depression. And so you have this influx of extra monoamines, and that often helps with various psychiatric illnesses. Second hypothesis is that the seizure leads to calming anticonvulsant effect in the brain after the seizure is completed. Third is that the seizure will cause release of hypothalamic or pituitary hormones, which is called the neuroendocrine hypothesis. 
there have been shown to be hypothalamic endocrine abnormalities in many psychiatric illnesses. And the fourth hypothesis is that the seizure leads to neurogenesis and actually increased neurotrophic signaling in the brain, which is called the neurotrophic hypothesis. It's really not clear amongst these four things if one of them is better than the others, but those are the four ideas we have right now. With this person that we're thinking about ECT for, are there things we need to know ahead of time from a medical perspective? Definitely. So for any patient that's going to go ahead with a course of ECT, before you give them the go-ahead, you must have them go through a full medical assessment. So you take a full medical history, do a physical exam, and really focus on conditions that would put them at higher risk of complications during anesthesia and the ECT treatment itself. Higher risk during anesthesia... What would you want to look out for? A few things. First, you would want to look for any cranial defects because this would potentially affect your electrode placement. Like if somebody had major reconstructive brain surgery. Exactly. Another thing to look out for would be their dentition. Patient might need to have loose teeth extracted or some sort of bite block. And of course, an anesthesiologist will also be doing their own medical assessment at the same time. And they would help out with that if they felt like it was called for. Okay. And then we said that this person is having a seizure, right? And there's a lot of biophysiologic things in your body when you have a seizure. Yeah, exactly. So uh, someone who's having a seizure will have rapid changes in their heart rate and blood pressure, and they need to be able to safely tolerate this. So look for any cardiac or pulmonary illness. So someone with really advanced heart disease, you might think twice. Yeah. In addition to taking a, a good history and doing a physical, you'll also do a standard set of pre-ECT labs, a CBC, electrolytes, you'll get an EKG typically, and for women, you'll get a urine pregnancy test. Okay. And then maybe anything else that sort of came up on those, you might want to investigate more. Exactly. Is there any absolute contraindication for electroconvulsive therapy? No, there actually isn't. But there are conditions that make the treatment higher risk. These would be conditions like having had a recent MI within the past few months, a recent stroke, either ischemic or hemorrhagic, having increased intracranial pressure due to there being a tumor or infection in the brain, any unstable cardiovascular disease or decompensated heart failure, or an unstable vertebral fracture. All of those things would put someone at much higher risk of undergoing anesthesia and having the seizure, but are not absolute contraindications. Okay. I am sold. Where am I going to get ECT? You're going to get some good ECT at a hospital or a clinic. So hospitals often offer inpatient settings to have this done. And a number of outpatient clinics will also offer ECT and other neurostim procedures. Why would somebody do it in an outpatient clinic versus a hospital? So there are certain things to think about when you're trying to decide if someone can get ECT as an outpatient or an inpatient. For outpatient ECT, the patient has to be able to maintain their safety. And they also have to be able to get to and from the ECT suite before and after the procedure. Which means they need someone else to drive them because they've just been sedated. Exactly. So if you have a patient who has super limited social support that precludes transportation to and from the facility, you might think more strongly about inpatient. Patient ECT. You would also think more strongly about inpatient ECT for someone with really severe symptoms of their illness, such that they would probably need to be hospitalized anyway. 
for instance, we often think about hospitalization for people who are at such high risk of hurting themselves that we don't feel like they can be safe outside the hospital. Yeah, exactly. From, you know, if you're getting this twice a week, like Monday and Thursday, if you're like from Monday to Thursday, I'm really concerned this person's going to hurt themselves. Maybe they stay in the hospital in between. Exactly. Exactly. So, so some of those things can factor into whether someone gets inpatient versus outpatient ECT. Okay. Before somebody gets this medical procedure, what would you need to do? After doing all the history and physical, making sure they're, they're medically okay to have this procedure done, you would want to go through the informed consent process. So you'd need to discuss the risks, benefits, and the alternatives to treatment with ECT. You need to make sure that they have decision-making capacity, just like any other medical procedure. And if you have questions about informed consent, you can refer back to episode... 15. Episode 15, where we talked about decision-making capacity. We've been talking about the benefits of electroconvulsive therapy. Let's say I was talking about decision and risk with people. What are the risks of this? Overall, ECT is a super safe procedure. It has a mortality rate of two to four per 100,000 patients. So in the scheme of general procedures requiring anesthesia, it's super, super safe. There are two main domains of side effects, general medical risks and cognitive side effects. So some of the common general medical risks of ECT are headaches, nausea, muscle aches after the procedure, cardiac arrhythmias during the procedure, aspiration pneumonia, fracture and dental tongue injuries could theoretically occur during the anesthesia if the paralysis does not go as planned. Those potential risks, though, are present for any surgical procedure in which someone's undergoing general anesthesia. Gotcha. So some general things that anyone would get when they go under anesthesia, anything specifically about cognition or how people think? Cognitive side effects are some of the main risks of ECT that you definitely want to talk with your patient about. They occur frequently, and they're variable in how severe they are and how long they persist. They tend to fall in two main domains. The first is anterograde amnesia. That is just fancy language for difficulty retaining new information. And it typically resolves over days to weeks after ECT course completion. But in addition to anterograde amnesia, there's also retrograde amnesia, which is fancy language for difficulty remembering events from before ECT and during the ECT course. It tends to resolve more slowly, and for some people it can be persistent, unfortunately. It's not super common that you'll see persistent, severe retrograde amnesia afterwards. But it's a real risk that you would need to talk about with your patients. Okay, is there anything you can do to minimize that risk or avoid it? Definitely. The biggest thing that we can do is being thoughtful about the electrode placement. So there are two very common ways of placing electrodes. One is called right unilateral, and that's where you have an electrode on your right temple and then one on your forehead. And then there's an electrode placement called bilateral, where you have two on your temples. Right unilateral has way less risk of cognitive side effects, whereas bilateral has much higher risks of cognitive side effects. So why would anyone do the bilateral one? Yeah, and that can be tricky sometimes because while bilateral has higher risks of cognitive side effects, it's also often associated with higher efficacy and it tends to have a better and faster response. So there's often a balance between trying to minimize these cognitive side effects with need for efficacy. 
Huh. Okay. Somebody's getting ECT. How do you how do you really know that they're getting better? Often we can assess this clinically, like the patient might have a brighter affect and they also might just have, they might be able to self-report improvement in their mood or their energy. You can also use more formal tracking measures like a PHQ-9 where you check their PHQ-9 before the first ECT session and then you can do weekly PHQ-9s thereafter. That's the patient health questionnaire with nine questions that people fill out in circle numbers. Yep. I imagine you could also sort of track someone's side effects with memory tests or things like that before and after if you wanted to. Exactly. That helps to assess for the cognitive side effects. So let's say you have somebody, they've gone through this whole course of ECT. You said somewhere between like six or 12 sessions or something. It's been a couple of weeks. They're feeling better, which you said happens in like 80, 90 percent of people. So now what? Are they good forever? Sadly, they're not. There's risk of symptom relapse after an ECT index course if there isn't some additional form of treatment afterwards. The risk of relapse if you don't do anything after the index course of ECT is 80% by six months. So it's really, really important to talk to your patient about what their options are after the index course is done. So the first option is classic meds and therapy. The second option is more ECT, and this is called continuation or maintenance ECT. And then the third option is a combination of the two. So doing more ECT, less meds and therapy. Gotcha. So you talk with somebody, you'd see sort of what their preferences are amongst those different things. They may have tried things in the past. You can continue ECT for several months, like two, six months. Uh, I don't think there's great evidence for the exact best frequency or duration. People will often taper off from like once a week to like maybe once a month or something like that. Exactly. That would be a very typical course for what maintenance ECT would look like if the patient was interested. And often when they do have a good response, they often are interested in doing that. Mm -hmm. And they probably wouldn't, for instance, stay in the hospital for all this time. They would go home and then you they keep living their life and just come back in for these sort of tune-ups. Exactly. And so hopefully this episode dispelled some of the myths around ECT It's a super safe procedure performed under anesthesia with an anesthesiologist present. It's never done against a patient's will, and it's highly effective for many treatment-resistant conditions. Lindsay, quiz me. Okay. This is a true or false quiz. Okay. Bilateral electrode placement is associated with highest risk of cognitive side effects. True or false? Bilateral, twice the electricity. Yes, higher risk of cognitive side effects, but more effective. True. True. All right. Presence of cardiac disease is a medical contraindication to ECT. True or false? False. Because there are no absolute contraindications to ECT, just things you have to be careful about or think about. That is true. Wait, the statement was false. Oh, But that was true. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. You're right. Okay. True or false, patients do not need any continued psychiatric treatment after completing an index course of ECT. False. You should definitely keep getting treatment because it's important to stay connected to care. Right, because your relapse risk is high. Okay, true or false, ECT is safe for pregnant women. True. Safe during pregnancy. It is. There we go. That's ECT. If you ever have the option on your psych rotation to see what ECT looks like, even though it is more boring than you are imagining, it's also really cool to see it. It's kind of a rare opportunity. Absolutely. 
So hopefully this was helpful, and I'm glad we talked about it. In the next episode, we're going to talk about another type of procedure that's done for depression, so stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, you can check out our website. Let us know what you'd like to hear more about in the future. Our website is www.psychessentials.org. You can also follow us. We're on Twitter and on Facebook at Psych Essentials. You can check us out on iTunes where you can rate, comment, and share Psych Essentials with all of your ECT-loving friends. Our music is by Javier Suarez off his album Tumbling Dishes. There's always a link on our website. We didn't talk much about specific people, places, or details, but they're always changed to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye. Bye.